Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman, a collaborative podcast with Pass It On Network. This program is brought to you by all of Community Services. Seniors deserve to have a fulfilling life with dignity and respect, but as we transition into our elderhood years, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here is Phyllis Amon. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, presenting informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. The show, which began in September of 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy, and the library of all of the episodes can be found on the Voice America Empowerment Channel under the name Seniors Straight Talk. They can also be downloaded on popular podcast platforms. The show is now also syndicated on the Voice America Influencers channel. So please remember to like, click, and share the episodes. I have two courses, which you can find on my website at www.phyllisaymanassociates.com. For those listeners who are what I say in SOS mode, stressed, overwhelmed, and stretched, Resilience Toolbox Secrets will help you capture the three R's, recharge, reset, and recommit. And family members considering taking on the role of caregiver or those just beginning the caregiver journey can find valuable information in my latest course, A Caregiving Guide for Caregivers, The Basics. I also have a new course, which will be coming out very soon, Coming Alive with Music and Communicating Effectively with Persons Having Dementia, who I am very proud to say I created with Dan Cohen, founder of Music and Memory and Right to Music. My latest book, Dignity and Respect, Are Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve, is available on Amazon in both paperback and ebook formats. The book addresses critical information about how we care for and treat our elder citizens in our families, our communities, in nursing homes, and assisted living residences around the country. I hope you'll purchase a copy and encourage your friends and colleagues to do the same. I anticipate an audio version of the book in the near future. Seniors Straight Talk is proud of the collaborative partnership with the Pass It On Network, a global peer learning network for positive aging advocates and a member of the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group on Aging. Seniors Straight Talk and Pass It On Network will continue bringing our listeners informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm also glad to welcome Olive Community Services, a nonprofit organization in Fullerton, California as a sponsor. Olive Community Services is dedicated to providing culturally appropriate services to the diverse senior population. And I'm very grateful to Olive President Rubina Chaudhry and the entire team at Olive Community Services for their continued support. Before we begin, I have to thank Peter DeGear of DeGear Therapy Services, who is a colleague and consultant specializing in rehabilitation therapy services in nursing homes. And today, for our guest, I have Mike Dark. Mike is a staff attorney at the California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform, where he assists long-term care residents and their families with incidents of abuse and neglect, illegal evictions, and COVID-related concerns. So Mike, I'm so glad you're here with me today. Um, I'm in uh, Connecticut, you're on the opposite side of the country, and I think we'll have a very dynamic conversation about the fact that um, 
What's happening in California happens on the East Coast and happens all across the country in nursing homes and assisted living residences. But we're going to concentrate on nursing homes for the purpose of um, our uh, conversation here. So can you tell the, uh, the listeners a little bit about the California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform? Sure. I'm so pleased to join you today, Phyllis. And Tanner, California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform, has been around since 1983. Um, It is a nonprofit, and it is really dedicated to representing the interests of people in long-term care, that's both nursing homes and assisted living facilities, also things like CCRs, um, in California. Um, But there are so few organizations that do what we do that often we are called on to help out or advise and assist across the country on related issues. Yes, I'm well aware because I'm a board member of the Massachusetts Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. And I think it was formed kind of with Canner as a blueprint a little bit. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that is right. And, you know, it's, it's a shame that there aren't more organizations like this. But one topic I think you and I will touch on today is how difficult it is for residents in long-term care Uh, to have a voice politically, because they're often not voters, they're not a rich lobby, and often they're up against um, industry entities, lobbying groups and organizations that are very well-funded and very politically connected. And so without groups uh, like those in Massachusetts and California to do this kind of work, um, there really wouldn't be anybody advocating for for the interests of people in in these situations? I I think there are a couple of organizations. There's Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care, uh, correct? And the Long-Term Care Community Coalition, which is based in New York. Uh, Richard Mollett does a lot of advocacy work. He sure does. And and a lot of um, policy work for the federal government, I believe. That's right. But I think if you look at the space of long-term care as a whole, good advocates like Richard, um, organizations like the ones you have listed are actually preciously few, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. compared to a cause like environmental, uh, uh, you know, defense or any of a number of other things. Well, it's interesting that you say that because my, my goal or my mission for the last few years, since I stepped out of the space working in Uh, nursing homes full-time, I'll say, as a speech pathologist, was really how can this become more of a national conversation? COVID has kind of catapulted a little bit uh, to that, and I'm so glad to see that there are uh, major media outlets that are continuing to cover stories, whether it's the Washington Post. I think an article just came out in the... um, uh, was it the LA Times? Times? Was it? There's, Times has done some great reportage. LA Times has done some great reporting. Call Matters here in California. Right. And both. so, so I, I'm glad to see that it's, it's kind of being kept alive, but it still doesn't have that same level of momentum as other causes, we'll say. Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, in a way, COVID was the worst way to get attention to to these causes. But what it did is 
put a spotlight on problems that have existed for a long, long time, but were basically just outside the consciousness of, of most Americans for lots of reasons. Some of the reasons are political, like we were just discussing, Phyllis, but some of them are kind of psychological in the sense that I think most people, younger, healthy people, don't even like to think about what life may be like if they become too old or too ill to care for themselves. And part of the resistance that we're talking about that people have towards engaging in these kinds of conversations is a kind of denial that it could happen to them. I agree 100%. And I have, uh, I believe that one of the root causes of people not receiving the care uh, or the society having the appetite to for the interest of that level of care, especially for people in nursing homes, is ageism to a certain degree. Um, but, and, and I've, I've used this, uh, I've heard it many times and I've used it myself to thinking about our future selves. I just wrote an article, I'm trying to find a home for it. And um, what I came up with, and this was a few weeks ago or a few months ago, I said, well, well, maybe that's part of the problem because we really can't see ourselves in the future. We might visualize our future and maybe when you're a certain age, you think of, well, you're going to be married or have a partner or have a house or kids and, or travel and you visualize this, but you don't visualize yourself as the older person in that scenario. So I came up with this concept that maybe if we could think of ourselves as emerging elders or evolving elders, then this is something that lives inside of us and it's an active process rather than something saying that's our future selves and that's out there and that's those people and they're over there. And that's what a great the- idea, Phyllis, and a kind of a critical point. We are all emerging elders and we are all emerging people with disabilities because I guarantee that everyone by the time they are 80 will have some kind of disability. And the point that you make about ageism is important too. I mean, it struck me when, when I was in college, I decided I wanted to, to volunteer. And I was living in Oakland, California. I lived near the Oakland Children's Hospital. So I went to Oakland Children's Hospital to volunteer and joined just a flotilla of other volunteers in uniforms with a volunteer coordinator. And in getting there every week, walking there, I walked past three or four or five nursing homes where people disheveled with their hair uncombed would be sitting on the porches. No one would even think of volunteering in a place like that. And, and that it struck me and it disturbed me then and now because it represents to me a kind of a failure of empathy, that it is a greater leap for people to empathize with people who live in nursing homes than it is to empathize with an attractive, cute little child. Um, uh, and we have to work harder to do it. That, that's probably true. I, I have this idea that I've uh, come up with. I'm floating it past a number of people to see if I could get, get it going. And um, it, it has to do with creating a platform where I don't want to say older people are celebrated. I don't mean it that way, but it's based on a platform I found that is to encourage 
and help inspire young girls to realize that they can be anything and accomplish anything and be confident. And so I came up with this idea based on this, how can I create something similar, but for older people or about older people and get that information into classrooms with younger people so they could see older people as people who have accomplished things, who are capable. You know, how many times I've had conversations, I'm sure you've heard this too, and maybe we've even said it uh, possibly, oh, they're 80 and they're sharp as a tack because it's anticipated or it's that stereotype that once you're a certain age, you're not no longer sharp as a tack. That's right, Phyllis. I think in, in lots of ways, older people are they're not just sort of disenfranchised, they're depersonalized. And one way, one terrible, tragic way that happens is when people go into the long-term care system. So people are often moving away from their families, away from their neighbors, away from their places of worship. Their working years are behind them. Their children are somewhere else. And they, they enter these places and they become... Uh, just sort of cargo in in these rooms. They don't really have identities anymore as human beings. And we have to repersonalize them, both to ensure that they get good care as people, but to reach this kind of platform that you're talking about, Phyllis, where we can have a discussion about older people as members of society, even when they are in long-term care. It's interesting you say that because I, I'm covering uh, for a speech pathologist who's out on maternity leave uh, at, a, at a nursing home, in an, in an, inner, an inner city nursing home. And uh, one of the first couple of days I was there, I was asked to go see this resident and I started speaking with her. Uh, she clearly had had a stroke uh, she, many years before. And this is what she said to me. I tweeted about this actually. The woman said to me that she used to work with the United Nations. Uh, We had a wonderful conversation about the United Nations. And then she said to me, but nobody talks to me. All they see is an old person in a bed. And she was fine until one day she woke up. She had a stroke. And that was like 13 years ago. Uh, She's I'm 68. I think she's in her 50s. So that was she had a stroke as a fairly younger person. And um, that was her. you know, that was her perception. And I've heard other people say that as well. Uh, and that's not just sad, it's dangerous. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's dangerous because when people are depersonalized in that way, they are much easier to neglect and to ignore. Um, and, I, and I think that um, this, this point that you're making about the importance of having sort of some integrity to their identity, even in long-term care, would also result in better outcomes for people. Because if if staff sees them as real people with histories attached to them, people who love them, people who who, who they raised, um, they they would get different treatment. You know, uh, I was in a a building a few years ago. I'll never forget this story. Well, of course I have lots of, we all have lots of stories if we've worked in this industry. And, There was a gentleman I was asked to go see. He had come back from the hospital. And the day I went to see him, the doctor had walked in or something. And he he was, uh, you know, he was kind of yelling and and he didn't want anybody in there. Okay. So I decided to come back the next day. And it had something to do with the consistency of the food he was eating. I'm a speech pathologist. That's an area that's in my scope of practice. And I went in and I started to talk to him. And he was at first quite dismissive. 
And then I, um, I, I don't know how I started the conversation, but I, I said to him, you know, I can imagine how you feel. He said, oh, the people in the kitchen, this, that, and the other thing. I said, listen, I, I don't know what job you had in your life. I, I know if I did my job that way, I probably wouldn't have a job. And he went, on, I wrote about this in my last book, I think. He went on to tell me that he had been a doorman in a very prestigious building in New York City. And he was very proud. He had met some incredible people, Margaret Mead, and I mean, like the gamut of successful and influential and, and intelligent people. And he was so proud that they entrusted him with their packages and their routines and things that they needed done that they entrusted him to, to take care of it for them. I mean, it was really quite incredible. Do you know that after that, they, they, he never had a problem in the building, even uh, when they made a mistake from the kitchen? Because I valued him. I validated him. We had, I told people, I said, by the way, does anybody know this guy used to be a doorman at such and such place? No, nobody knew that. Or, or, or once I met this woman, I think she was from Trinidad or, or something. She was a fluent Russian speaker. Nobody knew that. Mm. So, people, you know, there's this idea of person-centered care, but I wrote an article, person-centered care is more than a buzzword. It has to be really about the person, really about the person, learning about the person. And, and exactly. In that persons are not fungible. Right, right. Person-centered care doesn't just mean like any resident. It, it means understanding this resident. Correct. And it's not just about that you like strawberry ice cream and you want your red sweater, you know, uh, when you eat breakfast. It's, it's really understanding who these people are. Right. And, I, and if, we, if we have a discussion about staffing, which is always part of the conversation about, quote unquote, what's wrong with nursing homes, how, how are people supposed to do that if there is insufficient staff? How are they supposed to have the time to really get to know people, to relate to people, to understand people? Um, I have uh, this resident now and she's been talking, I, I mean, I figured it out. She had a stroke also. I figured it out after a while, but nobody knew this. And today she had a phone conversation with her former health, health aide, uh, home health aide. And the woman told, confirmed for me, but nobody knew who Valentine was. And she's worried about her cat. Right. And her cat is Valentine. They thought she was crazy. She kept talking about Valentines. Right. Right. And, you know, starting to dig into this issue that you raised, Phyllis, about staffing and about how we got to where we are in this COVID pandemic. I think that sort of the, 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 origin, the original sin of the nursing home industry really lies in staffing. And, and the, the problem is we do not have a national healthcare system. Of course, we have a national healthcare industry, <laughs> um, right? you know, which, which has the same profit imperatives that every industry has. It just happens that if you're trying to profit based on care that you're providing to elderly, vulnerable people who aren't effective advocates for themselves, then one way you can increase your margin is by decreasing staffing. So if you get staffing down to a bare minimum, which actually means lower than what the federal mandate is, because Correct. it's easy to manipulate, 
Um, you can save a lot of money, you can increase your margins, but what winds up happening is you'll have CNA certified nursing assistants who are working in these facilities who in California anyway, will sometimes see 10 or 12 or 15 residents I've, in an hour. I've seen 14 and 15. I Absolutely. And, and, you know, when people sort of wonder, well, how did, how did COVID get to be so bad in, in nursing facilities? You have to think, well, okay, 14 or 15 residents in an hour. Um, how do you wash your hands? Um, mm -hmm between each resident and still see all those 14 that you're supposed to do in an hour. How do you make sure that the tray that you're using to carry from, from one room into another has been sanitized so that you're not carrying any, any germs from, from one place to another? It just doesn't happen because it cannot happen. Correct. Um, and, uh, you know, before we started uh, the call, I was telling you that I was speaking with some CNAs at this uh, facility where I am, and they were very vocal about the fact that uh, they don't have enough staffing. It's backbreaking work. They don't feel appreciated. Uh, it's not only about getting more compensation, although, yes, that would help, but more compensation without more bodies to help care for these people in and of itself is not the answer. And I think people think if you pay more money, they will come, you know, build it and they will come. That's not necessarily true. People uh, realize they're not being, staff people are not being treated with dignity and respect either. So who wants to work in that environment? I, I think that's right. And, and while I think good pay, adequate pay for staffing is important, also things like, um, sick leave for for staff, especially in a pandemic where being sick and working anyway is a way that you can infect a whole lot of, of residents. Um, that's an important issue too. But I want to circle back to, to this larger money issue for this reason. I think a, a lot of well-intended people looking at the nursing home industry, looking at problems in long-term care, uh, think the fundamental issue is a reimbursement problem that the problem is with Medicare, the problem is with Medicaid or state equivalents, things like Medi-Cal in California. And if we just increase those reimbursement rates, um, we will come out with better care at the other end. And that premise actually has been tested periodically over time in different ways where you've seen infusions of cash basically into uh, long-term care throughout the country through programs like Medicare uh, and, and Medicaid. And what, what uh, was clear by the end of those experiments is that the money did not percolate its way down to the level of improving care or paying staff better. It went somewhere else. Right. And, right. and, and one thing that we have come to understand, I think, especially in the last few years, is the way that the financial structures are set up in the nursing home industry permit money to be siphoned out before it gets to the level of resident care. It can be siphoned out through contracts with consultants. It can be siphoned out through management firms that are also owned by the 
nursing home owner. So long before that, that those Medicare dollars ever make their way into the pocket of a good CNA or to you know, providing sprinklers or, or good food for people to eat, um, it winds up in someone's Lamborghini. Yeah, uh, no, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, I've seen this many times, and I'm sure you have as well, and it's been documented, researched, written about by many, many people uh, that we need more transparency in the industry because, so as it turns out, and be, right before we go to break, I'll say this, I looked up the ownership for this particular building where I'm covering I had never seen anything like it in my life. Um, there was a list of about, I don't know, 15, 20 people. I had never really seen that. And, LLCs, were they? Uh, yes, and 5% and 2 I was like, I really had never seen it. And I, I probably will at some point when I'm no longer there. Not that I would ever publish the name of the place or the people's names. I would never do such a thing. But maybe when I'm not there anymore, I'll take a screenshot of it and then white out some of the information so people could really see. This was, to me, appalling. Mm -hmm. And and it's pervasive. It happens across the country. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, And then when people have issues... And they, they want to or they need to, um, you know, have, some, have an issue with the ownership and, and maybe, you know, file some kind of claim with an ownership. This is part of the problem because you don't know who the owners are. That's and right. so you can't find those people. But uh, let's go to break. And when we come back, I knew this was going to be a very spirited conversation, Mike. I'm so thrilled. So we'll be right back on Senior Straight Talk in just a few. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. All of Community Services is a 501c3 that provides culturally appropriate services to seniors, their family, and the community. Through their interactive programs, Olive engages participants physically and mentally with a focus on building strength, mobility, and mental health. To learn more, get involved, or make a donation, visit olivecs.org. Together, let's live, learn, and thrive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the host at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk. I'm having the most spirited conversation with Mike Dark from Canner, the California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform, and we're talking about nursing homes and 
what's wrong with nursing homes, what, what we can do better with nursing homes, for the people in the nursing homes. But an important part of this conversation, obviously, is COVID, because I, I was saying that I'm glad that the media is keeping a lot of the issues around nursing homes alive, uh, where in the past, like if there was a weather incident, it would pass by. But this seems to be maybe that uh, catapulted it to a different level. And so we definitely should talk about COVID in nursing homes. <laughs> I, I think that makes sense. And one thing, Phyllis, that is so striking about the conversations around COVID in nursing homes right now is, is that it's what has happened in long-term care in America with the virus is portrayed sometimes as an act of God. It's actually largely an act of man in that while, while the virus, of course, is terribly deadly to people who are older, people who are sick, um, it was conditions that existed in nursing homes at the time the pandemic began that had existed for decades that really let uh, the virus take the terrible toll that it did. And but what I'm referring to especially are a terrible staffing um, which, which had as its kind of twin sister terrible infection control oh. because you can't have good infection control if you don't have good staffing. Right. And also the mirror image on the governmental side is terrible oversight, terrible regulatory oversight. And, and what do I mean by that? In, in California, and in fact, in most places in the country, uh, an infection control violation comes with a financial penalty of zero dollars. Really? Zero dollars. And that's because, well, who really, we all know infection control is just kind of a, it's a fairly abstract idea, right? It doesn't really affect anybody personally. It doesn't hurt anyone. But we know now that is so horribly wrongheaded. And the problem with that kind of thinking from a regulatory perspective is industries learn what regulators teach them. If the government um, penalizes facilities more seriously for an infection control violation, the industry learns to take them more seriously. Um, and the fact of the matter is regulators have just done a, a pretty poor job now for decades in ensuring that these are safe places for people to live. And they have to bear some of the responsibility for what has happened. Now, I agree. You, you were saying something in the break that I thought was interesting, and I think it's worthy of uh, bringing to the conversation uh, for the listeners, which was that during COVID, there was this large uh, facility in California. And well, you tell the story about what they did during COVID and how that had a positive impact, if you want sure. to say. Right. So one kind of defensive crouch that the industry goes into when talking about COVID is to say that, well, this is a virus that hit every nursing home in the same way people were going to be killed no matter what we did. It, it reflects nothing about conditions in the industry. It only reflects the biology of the virus. And that's not true. We know it's not true because across the country, there are examples of nursing homes, even very large nursing homes, where you have lots of very sick, vulnerable people living in congregate settings that were relatively unscathed by the virus. And so I'm thinking, for example, of the Laguna Honda facility in San Francisco, an enormous facility, maybe one of the largest in the country, that um, has so far gotten through the pandemic 
in really in very good shape. And one factor which was absolutely critical to its navigation of this pandemic was the fact that very early on, um, the, the facility, which is run by the city of San Francisco, brought in consultants to teach the CNAs, which staffed it, things like hand washing. Because when people think about infection control and COVID, they think about you know UV lights and things being <laughs> sterilized. No, there's, there's a very, very low tech fundamental thing which saves lives and that's correct hand washing because not everybody knows how to hand wash. They're not born knowing how to do it effectively. True, true. As a matter of fact, um, early on, I think it was, um, maybe it was on CNN, Sanjay Gupta, whatever, he was showing uh, how to wash hands and, um, or he had done it a few years before and somebody had said they never realized about what well, he was a surgeon, about washing the back of your hand. I was in a building and I was washing my hands and somebody was kind of watching me and laughing because I was washing my thumb. I said, no, but you're supposed to do that. Absolutely, uh, under the green. Right, and, and uh, I, I had said uh, quite a while ago that people weren't even trained how to uh, don or don and doff, put on and take off PPE. I was never trained in that. I mean, I knew, kind of knew, but there are very specific ways because obviously if you touch the outside of the gown and you do certain things, you could spread infection. Same thing with gloves. Um, people don't really teach that well enough. And, and something small like that can make a very big difference in terms of spreading a virus that's as... I, I, as, as easily spread as COVID. Well, well, that's right. And, and you raise another important point, Phyllis, which is that um, it, it, if, if we look at the pandemic as something which was inevitable, we learn no lessons from it because, because it was actually avoidable in this country and in many other countries, um, avoidable with very basic things long before the vaccines even became available. We, we knew how to stop it, um, but there were problems in the nursing home industry and in facilities across the country, which put a target on the backs of our elders who are living in these places. Things like systematic understaffing in order to increase profit margins. Um, things like poor training for CNAs, I mean, there, we've repeatedly heard over the course of the last couple of months that there is virtually 100% turnover among CNAs working at these facilities. If you have that kind of turnover, you tell me, Phyllis, how you effectively have institutional memory of, of good practices, how you train people. How does that work? It's, it's, it's not a possibility. It's not a possibility at all. And um, what people don't realize as, as much as that, that obviously is a problem. But think of yourself in your home. And if you had strange people walking in and out every once in a while, how that would make you feel. I had done a um, training in a nursing home upstate New York. Um, it was about communication and empathy. And the administrator participated in the training as did everybody in the building. And um, one of the things I said, and, and he had been a CNA, this administrator. It was an excellent uh, administrator, 
even in the short period of time, I could just see that he, he was really going to be great. Um, I said, so uh, these are these people's homes and consider that uh, you're in your home and even if it's your family members, people are walking by, nobody talks to anybody, rushing by, you call somebody, they don't answer you. How would you respond to that? And he said, oh, gee, I never really thought about it that way. Mm. What a great point. And especially for people with cognitive issues, people Correct. who have Alzheimer's, dementia, maybe people who've had a stroke, sometimes regularity, repetition, familiarity is the last thing that they can cling on to that gives them a sense of identity. Correct. And, 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 and without, without those good standard daily practices, they, they become unmoored. And that's something that we certainly have seen in the nursing home industry um, for, for ages. And, and Phyllis, I know you're an advocate of, of better training for, for staff in facilities. What, what do you see as the most important areas that, that staff improvement could, could take place in? Wow, that's a great question because there are so many. I would say communication. I, and I've been talking about this for a very, very long time, for many years, way before COVID. Uh, there's, there's one area that I think isn't getting a lot of attention in terms of communication. Um, and that is the fact that so many of the people in nursing homes are from different cultures. Some of them are from different countries. Some of them don't speak much English. Some of them don't speak any English. And now you have healthcare workers who are also from other countries. Some of them, English is not their first language. Some of them have very thick accents. Uh, nobody is really addressing that communication breakdown. So when, you know, I, 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 there, I have so many stories of, um, you know, people uh, going in and speaking with somebody who is confused, who doesn't speak English, and they come in with a, a different um, presentation. Maybe their country is, has a different style. Maybe their country has a different attitude towards older people. I've seen this many times. And they come in with this booming voice, and, and maybe in their country you pull the covers off somebody and say it's time for breakfast and then the person lashes out and therein becomes a different kind of dynamic. Mm. And so I don't think people are addressing communication. I don't think people are, um, I think also, and I believe this was written about in an article recently by a lobbyist. Uh, somebody told me he wrote about it, Mark Parkinson. I said, oh my God, I've been talking about this for two years, that uh, customer service became a big buzzword and everybody was talking about customer service. But I've been saying for quite some time, customer service is pointing a finger at care, at healthcare workers. You're really saying you're not doing something right. Um, how about if we look at it at the customer experience, the resident experience, whether it's resident satisfaction or customer satisfaction, the resident experience. And if we think about it that way, uh, what changes would we make in terms of training communication if we think about it in that way? It's an interesting and important point, Phyllis, that you make. And it, it touches on a, another sort of key problem that we've seen come out of COVID 
which uh, helps us better understand some of, the, some of these issues, the longstanding issues in nursing homes, and that is visitation and why it's important. And early on in the pandemic, there was a, a very well-intended reaction from public health authorities on state and federal level uh, that what we need to do is cut off visitation. Oh my goodness. And, 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 and we need to do that uh, in order to prevent the transmission of the virus to these vulnerable populations. Now, I say well-intended because I don't doubt that that was, that was the, the purpose of these restrictions. But what a lot of policymakers didn't understand was what those restrictions did in the industry and how visitation functioned for residents. And I know you've said in a recent AARP article, you've, you've pointed out the psychological importance that, the, the, that uh, visitation has for the survival of people in, in long-term care. But I want to make a, a, an, an additional point, which is that partly because historically staffing levels have been so low, when, when visitors come, and those visitors are usually family members, they can be friends, uh, spouses, ex-spouses, people coming in, what they were actually doing was giving care. Correct. So they helping bathe, comb people's hair, shave them, ensure that they ate. They, they might correct. know what foods that they liked because they weren't eating the facility food and they really liked eating, you know, uh, baba ganoush and they would bring that <laughs> in and they would eat that. Um, and so when visitation was cut off, it, it actually cut off a key source of care that people had been getting that was not replaced at the time when they needed it most. And it also cut off a safety net, which existed. Someone could see a bed sore develop. Right. See that, why are their fingernails so long? Why is their linen soiled? And, and when those visitors were cut off, those eyes on the ground disappeared too, again, just when people needed it most. I, I agree 100%. And, you know, there's an expression, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And I can't tell you how many times through the years I have heard people say, so-and-so's family is coming, make sure they're dressed. They're very particular. Make sure they're up, make sure they're bathed, make sure blah, blah, blah. I don't want to hear, whether that's right or wrong, that's a separate issue, but, but it goes to exactly what you just said. Whereas those, those preparations were made in anticipation of somebody coming to visit with that person who was going to be the eyes and ears. So now that that person wasn't there, none of those people were there. And, and, and in all fairness, these healthcare workers were fighting a virus and under very difficult circumstances, fear, they didn't have sufficient protective equipment. So that was, that was an important part of it. But just as you said, there could have been an extra pairs of there could have been extra pairs of hands to help out. Absolutely, and I can't tell you, Phyllis, how often in in the last year um, I have fielded calls from family members of residents uh, who uh, report um, malnutrition, rapid weight loss, mm. kidney failure due to dehydration, sending people into hospitals. That, that we would rarely hear 
two years ago. And that has everything to do with visitation. And, uh, and absolutely. absolutely. So when you said dehydration, before we started, I told you one of my favorite questions to tell family members to ask. And they, it doesn't even have to be if you're visiting a building, if you're calling to ask questions about a building. One of my favorite questions to tell people to ask is, how many ounces of water is my loved one going to get every day? Not, how, are they going to get enough to drink? Because the answer is yes. Because I know from the inside, the size of the cups on med carts for in most places or in a number, the places that I know, which is over 50 of them now, is about uh, six ounces. They go from eight ounces to six ounces for whatever reason is not important right now. And then that cup is only filled about half or two thirds of the way you know, up with water when they're giving medication. I have seen trays with no water or liquids on them at all. And these are not people with, um, with uh, liquid restrictions because of medical conditions. So that's a favorite question of mine, because as we all know, dehydration leads to urinary tract infection. It leads to confusion. It leads to falls. It leads to weakness. I mean, it leads to so many things. It's, it's a smart question because it, it opens up a, a lot of, of other uh, sort of cans of worms. If a facility can't answer the question, right. then you have to wonder whether they care how much people are drinking, which should be like the number one most fundamental thing uh, from a healthcare perspective that a facility is worrying about. Um, you also have to look at it as maybe a referendum on how much time the CNA has to sit while someone drinks. Correct. Because, because if, if, you know, they may not have time to sit and watch someone consume a large glass of water, a cup of water with their medication because they're trying to see 10 or 12 or 14 people in an hour. So, so it's a smart question. So, and, and not only that, Nurses are supposed to watch a person take their medication and drink the water. And how many times have I seen them put the medication down and, and walk away? But here's another thing when you talk about drinking, uh, which is very often, for whatever reason, I'm not there, so I can't say why they make these decisions. I could guess, but that's not important. Uh, the cups that they use are so flimsy, I can hardly hold them. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly strong person. Uh, they're so flimsy. How is an older person supposed to hold this cup? That's right. And, and you know, the, uh, another sort of related issue which, which comes up, it's sort of the inverse of the squeaking wheel gets the grease point that you made, Phyllis, is that across the country, California, New York, everywhere, another huge problem that happens is uh, – illegal evictions, and that's even too nice a term for it. What right. will happen is you have a, a resident who is put in a wheelchair and rolled under an overpass, or put in a motel, or um, they often wind up in homeless shelters uh, in California. And the people, the residents who are especially vulnerable to that are people with dementia, people who cry, people who scream, maybe someone who bites, people who take a long time to drink, right. all basically because they, they impose greater demands on staff, one, 
And two, especially if they don't have someone to advocate for them because they are unable to advocate for themselves. And so that, that happens in part because of reimbursement def- differentials between Medicare and Medicaid subsidies, things like Medi-Cal. And so right. in California, for example, there's really, you know, uh, ha- has been for decades a- an epidemic of this phenomenon because a, from a profit perspective, what makes the most sense for a facility is to have all of your beds occupied by residents on Medicare, right. which is a relatively high reimbursement rate for a facility. They, they make more money on, on patients on Medicare, but it only lasts a month. Now, right. the problem is that you can't just kick people out after their Medicare runs out if they have no funds, they need to get something like Medi-Cal or Medicaid assistance. They're not technically allowed to do that, right. um, but, but sometimes you'll find facilities that, that do engage in that conduct, and the, the best preventative to it is an engaged family member. I, I agree. And, you know, one of my missions from, from when I wrote my first book, when I first started on this advocacy path outside of nursing homes, I, I can't say that I wasn't an advocate inside of nursing homes because I always was advocating for something that they should be doing differently, uh, was how can we make this become a national conversation so that it becomes louder, it becomes more important, just like other, you know, uh, um, areas of advocacy have become important. You know, now there was a crucial incident with George Floyd, and that has really catapulted that whole um, issue to the national conversation. it was, but it wasn't. And in a way, it's more visible. And, and that's a great thing. But there are other movements that have become part of our national conversation from many years ago, whether whether we're talking about breast cancer or AIDS or whatever it is. This is so important because of the burgeoning older population, the number of people that are, are going to be older that are going to need care. Uh, and, and Phyllis, you're, you're searching for, for, you know, what's the crisis that will precipitate that level of engagement? And I think COVID may still prove to be that crisis. And the reason is that we've seen, you and I have seen, more media attention on nursing homes in the last 10 months than probably we got in 20 years uh, preceding that. And... That happened both because of the the poignancy and the tragedy of so many people dying at once, but also because people came to understand that it's not only the old and and the very ill who are in skilled nursing facilities, that if someone breaks a femur, uh, if someone has a heart attack as a 50-year-old, you're not going to spend your whole uh, convalescence in an acute general hospital. They're, they'll kick you out after three days. Correct. You know where you're going to go? You're going to go to a nursing home. And if, if you think nursing homes are a problem that happened to someone else mm-hmm. at the end of life, uh, guess what? It, it can happen to any of us really at any point in our lives. I believe there's a statistic that says that 
people over for the the population over the age of 65 that i think it's 40% i i might be more but i think it was 40% will spend at least some time in a nursing home even if it's one day right. and people don't realize I, i encourage people to get this information beforehand i say plan by choice not by crisis um being informed is being forearmed because just as you said there is going to be a crisis whether it's you fall and break a hip or you ha- or you have elective surgery for a knee replacement or a heart attack or covid or whatever it is and people don't realize that when they think of nursing homes they just think of long term care but the short term rehabilitation unit which is how they came to be known as like skilled nursing facilities that's the subacute version right of um of care and that's where the medicare dollars go and that's where they uh, a lot of these homes put their their emphasis to secure you know and attract people with medicare dollars uh so that people don't realize even though there may be better care in a short term rehabilitation um section of a nursing home maybe there is more staffing maybe there's more glitz Uh, there was an article about a facility in Long Island uh, several years ago that had a putting green it had a PT cruiser it had you name it it had it and yet it wound up on a federal watch list as one of the worst nursing homes so just because you're going into this short term unit uh this section of the nursing home and it's supposed to providing be providing a certain level of care i i think it's that Uh, I forgot the percentage forgive me but uh, it's a number of percentage of people Medicare beneficiaries are going to experience some kind of harm within the first 30 days yes. and I believe it's like 30% of that harm is preventable I th- that's exactly right and often that harm is an infection correct and, and and one thing that we've learned from covid is just how poor infection control is that's going to last long past this pandemic but and another you know, maybe close to final point i think is that if we're talking about sort of structural issues around nursing homes and the problems that people face in long term care in america ha- part of the conversation also has to be how little effort as a country how few resources we put into providing services that enable people not to have to go into a nursing home in the first place and and by that i'm really talking about home and community based services where right. you know you get someone to come in you know once a day to your house to do some basic things may keep some people out of nursing homes in the first place but we have not as a country seen that as an investment that we want to make but i think that with this new administration who wants to really develop the money follows the person program which is part of that uh i think there's going to be more uh more focus on that and because fewer people want to go to nursing homes not that people wanted to go there to begin with but they see that there are alternatives and uh, and you know uh, depending on how much care there are many people in nursing homes who don't need 24 hour skilled nursing care many 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 well that's right and Phyllis, i know another thing that that you have some expertise on is is family caregivers and the stresses that are put on family members and uh, one sort of version of that that i saw come up 
during the pandemic was I got a call from a woman who was beating herself up about um, not pulling her son out of a long-term care facility uh, in Southern California. He uh, was a relatively young man. He was probably in his uh, early 50s, schizophrenic, and there was COVID rampant in the facility. And she called crying because she felt like she was betraying him mm. by not taking him out to live with her in a one-room, single-room occupancy motel uh, where she lived on Social Security herself. And how it can be that we are in a 21st century, first-world country where people are put in this harrowing situation of, of trying to weigh whether their loved ones are, are, are safe in a congregate setting or whether they should take them home when they don't have the ability to care for them. I, I don't understand how we got yeah, to that. No, I, I definitely agree. And I mean, there's so much to explore on this topic. I mean, it could go on for, for quite some time. And, and um, I mean, there, there, like I said, there are so many ways in which the, from which the, the situation has to be approached. It's not, it's not one thing, it's, it's many things. And maybe it's a, a whole different kind of reimbursement structure. Maybe it's not all government money. Maybe it's, um, you know, I, I don't know, a, a combination of, of things. We, we know that the whole private sector, uh, private sector investment in this isn't really working out so great for people. I mean, it's working out for some people, but not for the people living in the facilities. That's right. And, and that's, uh, I think that's going to require a lot of people putting their heads together from many different aspects, whether it's researchers, policy people, financial people, um, you know, advocates, residents, I, I you know. And maybe we finally have some momentum to do that. Yeah, I, I'm really hoping so. Well, this was just terrific, Mike. I think we'll have to do this again. Um, it was really my pleasure, Phyllis. You're so fun to talk to, and likewise. your work is so important. Likewise. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening today. We had a wonderful conversation with Mike Dark from California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. And please join us next time on Senior Straight Talk for more enlightening conversations for the senior years of our lives. And until next time, please stay well, stay safe, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your host, Phyllis Amon, again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms.